0: This is Open to Hope Radio featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Now, here's Dr. Gloria.
1: Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host. Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, Heidi, uh, we have got a guest that you've been working with at TAPS, which is, TAPS stands for um, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. A lot of people are wondering about suicide in the military. It's been a buzz for a while and people are very concerned about it. And we have a wonderful guest today who's not only had the experience, but is going to talk about the wonderful things that TAPS is doing to help people who have had um, uh, military loss. Hadi, do you want to introduce our guest?
2: I would love to. As you said, I've known Kim Morocco for, for many years now because I do some workshops at TAPS, and she works for TAPS. And she is an expert on military loss, and I'm so, we're so glad to have her here. I've wanted to have her on the show for years, and I didn't get my act together, but now it is. So I'm really glad she's here. So I would love to introduce her. Kim Ruaco is a social worker and the manager for suicide outreach and education programs at the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors of Military Loss, which is also known as TAPS. In 2005, her husband, Major John Ruaco, a U.S. Marine Corps, a decorated Cobra gunship pilot, and the father of their two sons lost his life to suicide. He returned from a tour in Iraq and 10 weeks later was preparing for a second tour when he died. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Hi, Kim. You know, I know people right now are listening and feeling, wow, this is incredible. I mean, I think it touches everybody's heart because, you know, we so appreciate our military people and the fact that they're willing to go out and serve and put their lives on the line. And then when a tragedy like this happens, it, it, you know, it hurts us all. So talk a little bit about your journey and and your husband being in the military and and then taking his own life and then you being able to move on and help other people. I mean, I just think it's an amazing story.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I think what people don't really realize is really the sacrifices that military families really um, have for for their lives as well as the service member. So, you know, I, I met my husband in college, and he always wanted to be in the Marine Corps. And so we kind of joined the Marine Corps together, um, went to flight school back in the early 90s, and he got his wings and was a, a really, really good pilot. Um, we wow. traveled all over the country, um, you know, with him flying and kind of, you know, me me trying to work in between, and I had, I had gotten my master's in social work before um, we both went to the Marine Corps, so I kind of had, um, you know, a social worker background and did a little bit of work with, you know, military families while we were actually active duty. Um, and John, you know, really had his first loss and his first trauma um, in training in the military, which was when we were stationed in North Carolina in the early um nineties. Um, during that time there was multiple training accidents in the air wing. Um and John, you know, yeah. and I lost a lot of friends. And for for John that was his first really big loss in his life and he um he really didn't know what to do with it except for just to kind of be a marine and suck it up and go forward and not really process it. And I think a lot of his tears did the same. Um you know many of them they had uh, yes, yep, yeah, you know he had his he had three uh helicopter crashes in a row where he lost friends, and with each one wow. you know he would he would kind of you know go to the funeral, they'd do a very formal ceremony, but then they'd you know they'd hop right back into the cockpit the next day and they really you know they would talk about the person that they lost and you know do remembrance through memorials and stuff, but no one I ever saw really grieved it. You know, I never saw him. Well, I can't imagine. Talk about it. Yeah.
2: This is so intense. I can't imagine. I mean, here John is, like you said, seeing his friends dying and they were in accidents and then he has to get back in the cockpit and fly. Yes, and for the family too.
3: Like, you know, yes, and for the families too, because we had, you know, many of my friends were now widows at the time and we -hmm. were all young and had young children and so. For me, the fear that the same thing would happen to him also started to bubble up because before that it really wasn't real. It was all very fantastic and it was like a movie and it was, you know, very glamorous in a lot of ways. But when I started to see some of my friends become widows and, and see some of the things that my husband was, um, you know, exposed to, it really was, you know, kind of reality started for me then. Um he also got, to, during that, during that uh, place where we were stationed there, he also was deployed twice um, during that time to Somalia and to Bosnia. So we had a lot of separations, and we had both of our children while we were stationed there. So when you think about a military family and you think about just in four years the kind of stressors we had and the kind of um, things that we had to really face and overcome – Um, It really is amazing. I look back to it, you know. Like I had both children. He was deployed. He had had multiple losses. I had had multiple losses. We had hurricanes that evacuated us from North Carolina. So that was our first station in the military, and it really started off with an exposure to a lot of um, things, you know. And a lot. It really gave me a real good insight to what our military families are really um, having to struggle with. So. You know, that was we we left North Carolina and went um, to Washington, D.C., where he was stationed in the Pentagon for a while. Um, and he was the rotor wing monitor where he picked the jobs for his peers, really. And during that time, um, it was a very stressful job. Um, he started to have some physical pain along with some of the unresolved um, trauma that he had from North Carolina. He had tore his Achilles. He started to have back injuries and stuff that he had had. Um, you know, he acquired within the military. Um, and so he started to have a combination of, you know, physical pain along with some emotions starting to bubble up from his losses in North Carolina. Um, and, you know, we started to talk about getting out of the Marine Corps and moving back home and started to talk a little bit about the strain of military life and what that was, uh, you know, doing to him. And kind of, I realized that, you know, he, wouldn't, he could not be in the Marine Corps and not give a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time, but it was taking a real toll on him. Um, And I also started to worry worry about my little boys who were, you know, like six and eight at the time and, you know, having to move them every couple of years when they'd just get started in a school or just make friends. Um, Mm -hmm. So we together started to make a plan, you know, to kind of transition out of the Marine Corps, and we took a job in Oklahoma where he was um, started Training a young pilots to fly in t thirty sevens which are jets, so it was an air force wow. exchange he was uh, a, an instructor pilot there he he excelled in that as well he became he was a senior marine there he was a instructor pilot for these young guys who were learning how to fly f eighteens and 16s and those um it was the first step in those um trainers um and, you know, that the reason that we went there was because he was going to get fixed wing time to go to the airlines, you know, get out of the military, move back home mm, to Massachusetts where our family is. Yeah. And um, it seemed to make sense. But then what happened was, mm. um, you know, a, a year or two after we were there, 9-11 happened. Um, mm. And I'll never forget that day. You know, we were, he was going in late for work because he was flying that evening. And, you know, the news came on with um, on 9-11 with the towers being hit and, we both watched that, and he looked at me and he said, you know, this is going to change everything for us. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't really realize what a big statement was, that was, but for him it was a, you know, a change in, in in how he saw everything, because now he felt like he had a duty to serve, and he knew that that meant that our country was going to go to war, um, so he didn't feel right about getting out of the Marine Corps, yet he had you know, promised his family that we would move back home so he kind of tried to make up a plan where he could please everybody. How we could stay in the Marine Corps, how we could, you know, get out and go to the um, airlines, and he could finish training these young guys who were going to be needed, you know, in jets. Um, mm-hmm. And he really tried to do everything. And so many of our, so many of our service members are guys and women like this. You know, they they don't think about themselves. You know, they're always last on that. So physically, they're in service all the time, right? All, yeah, they're just in service all the time and, mm-hmm. and feel like they're, they're superhuman in some ways. You know, they don't need rest. They right. don't need self-care. They don't need physical care or psychological care that they can just handle all of it. Um, well, when you're in the yeah. Marines, it's the gold standard. When you're in the Marines,
2: the gold standard is the military, and then you put a pilot on that. I mean, that's about as, as high as it gets.
3: Yeah, and he, he took it very seriously, and these guys, for them, mm-hmm. you know, being a pilot, being a Marine, it really becomes their identity as well as their job. Um, right. So for him, you know, he he deployed to Iraq after moving us back to Massachusetts and attaching to a, a unit that was deploying. He deployed to Iraq, and he had he flew 75 combat missions in a very short period of time over there. Um wow. And came back from Iraq in Thanksgiving of uh, 2004, and mm-hmm. I I knew right away that that he was not okay when he came back. Um, mm. He was distant, you know. He was agitated. He couldn't sleep. He, um, you know, he had nightmares and flashbacks. He was like impatient with the kids. He, you know, he was just different. Um, so he had some he post talking, he post traumatic stress. Yeah. Yep. And mm-hmm. he and he had some depression along with it too. Like he. He yeah. kept saying, you know, that he couldn't see any any light, and he couldn't see any goodness, and everything was dark, and he couldn't feel anything. And we really started talking a lot about him seeking help during that time. Um, mm-hmm. And he he was now a lot of things happened while he was deployed. One thing, one big thing was the the squadron that he was attached to was in Pennsylvania, and now got moved to California, and we had just bought a house in Massachusetts. He was going to commute to to pennsylvania for the reserve squadron but now this reserve squadron was in california so i wasn't with him during this period he had to he had to stay attached to his california unit to train for another deployment in march so he could only come home for like a week at a time so um Mm -hmm. i don't you know i only saw him a little bit at thanksgiving and then at christmas of the year he died
1: and then you got Um, the call that he'd uh did he shoot himself yeah
3: like you know he talked about getting help that whole time and he he kept saying to me, "I can't because I'll let everybody down. They'll think I don't want to redeploy. It'll I'll lose everything. They'll think I'm a weakling. You know, I'll, no one want to want to follow me. I won't be able to lead. You know, he really had a strong sense that getting help would make him lose everything." Um, it, it's interesting
2: so because you know I moved yeah. back. I moved back to New York after 9/11, and it changed my life profoundly too, to work with the fire department. And from the California, and so when I came here in New York to work with the fire department, you hear the firefighters saying the same thing, you
0: yeah. know, and, and, and
2: military uh, yeah. guys and police. I mean, getting help is seen as a sign of weakness, and they have to be there. They don't want to show their guys, their fellow guys that they work with, that they're that they're not up for you know the challenge of defending them and helping them and protecting them. Mm-hmm. And it's
3: actually the opposite. I, you know, if you can. Get help, mm-hmm. and you can model that, and you can get through and get to the mm-hmm. other side. You're actually a stronger, better leader, but he, he didn't have any role models for that. You know, he'd never seen I that love that you're coming. saying that, Kim, and I think that
2: message yeah. has to be out there even yeah. more, like you're saying, yeah. for, our, for our people on the front lines, especially men, because there is mm-hmm. this stigma. But like you yeah. said, it takes great strength to, to get help. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong. I mean, Yes, and, you know, I you think saw, that's still the
3: biggest battle that we have against, um, suicide in the military right now is still the stigma. Um, you know, people. I think more people are getting help, but they're they're still waiting till they're very sick to get help. Until mm-hmm. their lives have, you know, are falling apart around their struggles, and then they go get help. And by that time, it's it, it's a long fix. It's harder to fix because their relationships have fallen apart, their careers impacted. They may have gotten DUIs, and they may have addiction issues. You know, there's these compounding issues. So. You know, I, I look back on our lives together, and I, I wish he would have gotten help way back when he first had the first traumas, way back in North Carolina. You know, and if he would have been able to process his grief and his trauma from then, found ways to to really, um, you know, talk about those things with not only me but his peers. Um, because one of the interesting things that happened was at John's funeral, many of those guys who flew with him in North Carolina, their wives and and the, and the um, Marines themselves said to me, you know, I had the same struggles, um, you know, Mm -hmm. after that that deployment and after that um, being stationed there. Um, And, you know, many of them got help after John's death because they saw that, you know, untreated PTSD and depression can be deadly, you know, and they, they never really realized that either. I mean, not only did they realize that you can get help and get better, but they didn't realize that, you know, leaving it untreated can be like a disease that just eventually kills you. Right.
2: So what's the number what's one of the main things that you find helps families after they've had a suicide loss in the military
3: i think being with other people that have had a similar loss and finding some understanding in in why and how this happened um, starts them off on a path of healing because. You know, it's like a whirlwind and you think you're alone in it, you know, and and you think it's all your fault and you should have done this and you should have done that. And, you you know, I think getting peer support and then finding some understanding in what what contributes to suicide loss and that it's not just one thing that's a perfect storm of events. Um, and then on the look back, it's so much easier to see the whole picture than when you're in the middle of it. You're really, especially military families, are really in survival mode half, most of the time. You know, they have a lot to handle. They have a lot of stressors. They have a lot of moving parts. Um, and they're they're frequently separated from their support systems. And so, you know, it's no wonder in that um, mode where you're trying to survive and take care of your children and move and set up home and make sure your husband...
1: I, I was going to say that. You're you're totally out of community, aren't you? There are people you'll never see again. Your neighbors, you have to leave your house.
3: Yes, and the kids have to start at new schools and new, you know, new friends and new jobs and new new uh, sports teams and, and new communities. And so, you know, our military families are handling a lot all at one time. So, you know, it's, it's very understandable that you know, they get in survival mode and they don't really realize how much, you know, their loved one is suffering or how sick they are or, what it, or that it's an emergency situation. So, so
2: Kim, I know you provide uh, aftercare programs to military families yes. that have had a loss with suicide. What kind of things do you do in those programs?
3: Mhm. Well, the first thing I learned was, you know, I went to TAPS looking for help for my boys. They were eight and ten when my husband died, and so one of the one of the best things that TAPS has is a good grief camp for children.
1: You said you went to TAPS, but what I would like our audience to hear is what is TAPS, where is it, how did you access it, and who can go?
3: Yep. So TAPS provides um, grief peer-based greek support for all those who have had a death in the military and are, are grieving that death whether it's a, a a wife or a husband or a parent or a sister or brother or cousin or battle buddy for anybody who's grieving a death in the military um they can come to taps and we will provide very comprehensive peer-based support within taps i started a program that's specific for suicide loss and we have very specific programming for those who have lost someone to suicide and that includes Um, a good grief camp for kids where they're paired with a military member um, and are with other kids who have lost a parent or a brother or sister or somebody they love to suicide. Um, We have peer mentoring for the adults where they talk to another um, survivor who has lost someone in a similar relationship in a similar um, circumstances uh, to suicide. Um, We have retreats and regional events, and we have a suicide survivor seminar every year that, that It focuses specifically on suicide loss, and we tackle things like why did this happen, um, the spiritual challenges, um, post-traumatic stress related to the loss itself for the family, um, how to talk to children, how to get children through this kind of trauma. Um, And we join together as peers to find new meaning, new hope, new purpose, and connection in our lives, because I really think that those are the four real keys to uh, healing.
1: Now I have a couple of questions. One is, I'm listening to the show. Does my spouse? Can it, I mean I could be male or female, right? It could be my wife who died in, in military service, or my husband, uh, or a child, right, that died in military service. Okay, my question is, do I have to be in Do they have to be in active duty in order to go to TAPS?
3: No, they don't. You know, as long as their death is related to their service, um, then we we provide care for you, and we do that because. There is some differences when your relation when the death is related to their service. For example, if somebody you know has post traumatic stress related to their service, it, it's an injury. And even if they get out of the military and then die a couple years later by suicide, then their their struggles are you know connected to, to the, um, their service. Um, and you know any anybody any relationship can come in any service we have um, you know the reserves, the guard, um, and active duty as well. And they can just go to TAPS.org.
1: Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. How would I find it? TAPS.org. Yeah,
3: TAPS.org, but we also have a 24-7 care line, which is unusual for organizations. It's answered 24-7 by peers, um, and it's 1-800-959-8277. Um, and you can call 24-7 um, to talk to a peer about your grief or to get support. That's awesome.
1: Now. And I um uh, what if I don't have any money? Is there any financial help for the camp or anything?
3: It's, um, all of our, our, our most of our programming is free um, except for you know um, some small costs for retreats that go on trips and some of our um, some of our uh, bigger events. Um, and we have financial um, scholarships for all those who can't afford it. So costs should not be prohibited for anybody. we We find ways to get them there.
1: is the major office in Washington, D.C., is that right?
3: Yes, our main office is in Washington, D.C., but we have um, events, regional events, all over the country. We have two to three every single month. Uh, You can find them on taps.org and see when one is going to be closer to you. We also have retreats that are all over the country um, and care groups that meet uh, monthly. So if you go on our website, all that information will be there and you'll be able to find someone uh, closer to you or you can just call 800 number and we can help you find it
1: all right well kim thank you so much for being on the show today and for all the work you've done thank you for having me in the name of your husband john and and thank you for all the people that you're helping
2: thank you yeah kim i just want to add that uh, thank you so much as my mom said for everything that you're doing out there for the military families and i just want to say that john is doing as much in his death as he did in his life to change the world through all the work that you're doing Thank you so well, much for you. being on our
1: show. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for listening to our show today. And we hope that if you have any connection with any uh, military families who have had a loss, that you will tell them about this TAPS resource because it's an amazing resource. And uh, I know, how do you present there, right, at times?
2: I do. I do workshops, and I, I'm honored to do them because they are doing so much good for so many out there who really need to find hope after loss.
1: And uh, I thought we ought to say something quickly about Bonnie Carroll. Heidi, do you want to tell our audience who she is?
2: Sure. Bonnie Carroll is the one that founded TAPS, and she is the person that is in charge. I mean, Kim could probably do her justice more than I could, and her husband died, and she does it as a tribute and honor to him. And, you know, TAPS has just grown and, and become, it's just gotten legs of its own because of all the good work that Kim and Bonnie are out there doing. And Bonnie kind of lives, breathes, and sleeps this organization, and she really looks at all the people in TAPS as part of her family.
1: Right. So, again, yep, that's true. <laughs> so, again, <laughs> you. if you've had a, mili- uh, a loss connected with the military, please contact TAPS. And thanks for listening to the show. And Heidi and I want to say if you've lost hope and are feeling discouraged, lean on ours till you find your own. And God bless.
0: You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio